Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootser Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Khan and I talk about how you can start, run and sell a Bootser business. This episode is called Priming a Business for Due Diligence. Let's get started. In preparation for a due diligence process, and I'm talking about buyer side due diligence here, not the due diligence that you do, but that somebody else does on your business, there are a few things you can routinely update and use. And most of these things have to do with financial and business metrics, what other are legal requirements. I'm going to talk about the things that we used for our sale of Feedback Panda, our SaaS business, and the kind of little interesting pieces of information that we learned along the way. Let's start with one of the central things, the profit and loss sheet. One of the first things any interested party will expect you to provide is a profit and loss sheet. And that's often called a PL. I'm going to use that here in this case. And not only is that going to be used in due diligence, it's going to be used almost um, exclusively for anything that has to do with an acquisition. If you work with a broker, they expect you to hand over a profit and loss sheet. If you work with potential acquirers per interested parties, they will expect you to have not not a full PL, but some PL for them to look into. So to see if it is interesting at all what you're doing. And in its most basic form, it's a spreadsheet. And it's just outlining your expenses and your revenue history month over month. Some PL sheets are highly detailed, and those are gonna be the ones that you will use, I guess, in the further stages, like the advanced stages of um, an acquisition process and a due diligence. They are gonna be detailed down to describing each individual expense. Like I spent five bucks this month on Auth0 and uh, $27.5 on this particular service. And then there are services that are not services, PL sheets that group expenses into broader categories, like, I don't know, payment software or just software, even. Right? You spent like 20,000 this month on software. Not really clear why and what, but it is enough for people to see how profitable your business is. And yeah, that's the idea, right? The idea is to see from the sheet, are you a profitable business or are you an unprofitable business? And all PL sheets track the relevant business figures of the past, um, at least. And some also include projections into the future. I don't know if that's an actual PL sheet at this point because it involves data that is not necessarily factual, but some people expect to see where this is supposedly going because. If you've set up these growth goals and these kind of particular revenue and profit goals, then you may have put into place the systems to get you there. So if somebody buys a company, they also buy the systems so they can expect to get there, right? So that's kind of the logic there. And there's a certain political element to this kind of document. I want to talk about this because it's interesting. It shows where you're coming from, where you want to go and where we will go if things continue to work the way they do right now. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about these systems. And it's something that you communicate with these documents. As this PL sheet is usually the first document a buyer gets to see, it is often not necessarily just used, but it often acts as an anchor for their expectations. They see your projections into a year from now and you expect like 50% growth. Well, that's what they expect. That's what they will base their whole notion of how much your business is worth on if you have this in the business, the documents there in the PL. So if you were, let's say, more ambitious and you said, well, I'm going to grow 100% over the next year or maybe 400% because you're getting into a market that is just exploding, well, that might heavily influence the way this company is going to be thinking about the negotiation, right? Or about any kind of earnout requirements that you may have. So think of this document as a pretty impactful 
document in the whole process of your acquisition. And it's a good, and yeah, I guess that's that's the, the flip side of it. It's not just that. It's not just a political document that you show somebody else. It's also something important for you. It's good business hygiene to have such a document from the beginning and to update it, it with the latest number, uh, with the latest revenue numbers, profit and loss numbers every single month. And this will allow you to have insight into the developments of your bottom line. And it will give interested parties a quick and almost, almost cursory glance into the current health and attractiveness of your business as well. So it's great for you as well to have this kind of document. Honestly, you will likely not need a PL sheet to see this because most SaaS founders have hooked up their, I don't know, Stripe or Chargebee or whatever payment system they use to Bearmetrics or Profitwell, both services that I highly recommend. We ran both. Profitwell is free because it's also a funnel into the consulting that um, Price Intelligently is doing, which is great. So having a free tool that if you are making so much money that it would be worth for them to look at you, it's a great way of building a little software tool there. And Bearmetrics is not free, but extremely worth it as well. Like their projection, their kind of um, benchmarking system was always super enjoyable. There's a lot to learn through the platform itself, a lot of insight you can get. And honestly, these things are more attuned to SaaS than the profit and loss sheet is because SaaS is an ongoing concern. Every relationship with the customer is an ongoing concern and a profit and loss sheet can only really display a point in time. And I would say having a service that can average this better, that can give give you more um, numbers by cohort and all these kind of things, that is more interesting for you internally, but it's still important to have externally for acquiring bodies. So let's talk about the internal things. Let's talk about internal metrics. Um, like I said, I recommend using Profitable or Bear Metrics. And they, they, these tools hook into your payment processors and they use your subscription data to extract trends, key numbers, and to aggregate them. And while many payment providers have some sort of dashboard and statistics pages, and Stripe does as well, these business metric tools are focused on obtaining the most meaningful numbers and making them actionable. And often since they aggregate business data from many similar businesses, you can see how well you're doing compared to similar businesses that use those services. And I've always found it extremely reassuring to see that our churn rates were significantly lower than the average figure of businesses that had customers with similar lifetime values, because that's how Bearmetrics groups benchmarks. So we learned of a few parts of our business where we lagged behind compared to the other businesses. And that allowed us to focus on improving these neglected areas of the businesses, like the number and value of failed credit card charges, for example. We would never have known that we were actually not there um, above the average with the other businesses if we hadn't been able to see this in comparison to them. So using tools like this, um, they will give you some incentive to, uh, to work on those parts of your business that are subpar. And these numbers are well known in the acquisition community. They know what a good churn rate is. They know what a good customer lifetime value is. And the, if you are not there with those numbers, that will impact your sales price and it will impact due diligence. Because the one thing that you don't want to happen during due diligence is for due diligence to end prematurely with a negative outcome. What that means is that they're not going to buy your business after looking into your numbers. That's what you want to avoid. So having as much data as you can throw at them that is meaningful and conveys that you're operating a profitable, positive, cash flow positive at best, sustained, sustainable and sustained business, that's what you want. And 
these tools, Profit Tool by Metrics, will allow you to do this. And all the business analytics services have slightly different ways of calculating values. That's important. And um, there's a podcast episode by Josh Pickford, the founder of Metrics, where he explains this, why their numbers look different than regular P&L numbers and maybe different than numbers that they used before or that other services use. Monthly recurring revenue is calculated completely differently when you take into account um, credit card decline rates then it would be different, calculated differently if you would not take that into account and just assume that a flat percentage of those would recover the next month, for example, right? They, they may not be completely accurate. They're not going to be accurate down to the dollar, but in, in fact, they, they won't be as accurate as a tax report would need them to be. But um, yeah, it, it just happens because at some point, the developers who built these tools made a choice about when a chart should be counted as completed. And like when the customer subscribes or when the credit card is charged or when the credit card is charged successfully or when the money actually hits your bank account. Then the same is true for unpaid but outstanding invoices. Do they count? And at a certain scale, this will make quite a difference in the final calculation. And every business tool um, has made different choices here. So the numbers, they, they vary a little, um, but that, that is not a problem because the numbers still have meaningful content for you. They might be more meaningful than looking at the actual correct figures because they indicate a trend more often than not. So you will get a lot of insight into customer segmentation, into retention, churn, and other relevant SaaS metrics for free, like we're profitable or for a low price with their metrics. And again, this is money you would might want to spend because they also kind of scale um, the pricing by MRR of your business. So if you have a business that has like a thousand bucks MRR, it's not going to be expensive. The moment you reach 50K or 75K or something like that every month, it's going to be more, but it's still going to be like a three-digit number. So don't worry about that kind of stuff. And actual in, actionable information that allows you to make smart business decisions is worth a lot more than just having accurate numbers. And I guess bookkeepers might look at me funny when I say this, but as an entrepreneur, I can tell you having just the numbers is not going to tell you much. It's the actionable insight that you'll be using these tools for. And it won't make any difference if your churn is reported at 25.8%. If it's really 25, 25.4 or something, you will have to do something about your churn if it's in the 20s, right? So knowing that these numbers um, are there for your like, guidance and to find actionable moments where you can make a difference, that's what they use for. And these services, they also offer read-only accounts with anonymized data that you can share with interested parties. So they have these parties can have immediate insight into the metrics of your business without being able to see who your customers are. And that is really cool because if you want to show somebody, yeah, we have 5,000 customers here, look at how many of them have this plan and blah, blah, blah. You don't want to give them access to a system that allows them to extract their the last four digits of the credit card number and their email address, full name and address, right? Not going to happen. But if you just see them reported as customer four and customer 10 and address number seven and email, I don't know, customer four at example.com, well, they are real data just masked and like anonymized. And your acquirer will know that they are that and they will see, okay, here's an actual customer that has been sticking with this business for, what, four years? This is interesting, right? So 
this this will be very interesting when you are starting to negotiate both the sales price of your business and the the other kind of concerns that are the other kind of um, constraints that might go into it. Will you need an earnout? Will it work for them without it hiring you? All these things. If you can give this kind of detailed data, this insight, this might be an extreme benefit for you. And we've been looking at the past, right? Where analysis tools uh, are, let's look at forecasting because forecasting tools look into your future. And there are tools out there like Summit um, that will hook into your payment processors data as well. And then they will give you projections and forecasts into the future of your business. And you will be able to set goals and simulate how your growth would be affected if specific goals were reached or missed. That is really cool because now you can flip the tables. You can look at how your customers behaved, how these cohorts behaved, and you can extrapolate that data into the future. You could even do things like, well, let's, let's just think about it conceptually. Forecasting allows you to explore several scenarios of where your business could go. If you make certain decisions that are hard to reverse and would be very risky to attempt in reality, like hiring a number of people or switching to another audience, like pivoting to another kind of product completely, it's business experimentation powered by statistical models that are at least less biased than your hopeful entrepreneurial perspective, right? So it's a projections of your ambitions into the future. And being able to share this kind of projection will give you acquire the confidence that you have thought about these things and that there's statistically significant chance that those goals that you've set may actually be reached in reality. If you've been using forecasting tools for a while with all your businesses, um, and with the, the, over the history and, and the time um, that you spent in your business, will also show you by how well you've been able to reach those goals that you've set. That will be very helpful in conveying your expertise as a founder and as an industry expert. So forecasting tools, analytics, both interesting analytics, I would say, are extremely required because people just expect them. I would wager that in the future, forecasting tools, just like Summit, I think the URL for that is usesummit.com. It's a really cool product. I'm not affiliated, but it's awesome. Um, these things are going to be much more expected than they are right now. So you can have a leg up if you use this um, already, both internally because it's going to give you confidence that your plans are good, but also externally because it will give you acquire confidence that you know what you're doing. Let's talk about liabilities because uh, as much as this as this is not fun, it's important. Because when it comes to legal tripwires, make sure that you have those under control. And it starts, for SaaS businesses in particular, with software licenses. Use tools that extract all the licenses used in your code base. There are going to be open source code bases often, right? Or your your code base is going to be be using a lot of open source tooling. And all of these things have licenses, hopefully, because some might not. And turn this kind of document or turn this kind of... um, software license collection into a document, a living document. Because when you use software that has no license attached, you may need to replace or modify it to comply with legal requirements, which is super weird if you think about it. But there there is software out there that has no license. That means that the owner can do whatever they want to with it. They can tell you, well, um, from next month on, you're going to have to pay $5,000 a month to use this piece of software. That would be perfectly legal because you've been using it pretty much without their consent because there was no license attached. And there are licenses out there that severely limit how and if you can sell the product that is resulting out of using the the code that was licensed with this license. So knowing all these things 
is half the battle. And um, when you use that software, yeah, that, that has, has no license, I, I would be very careful with this because that can be an extreme tripwire when you, the due diligence happens. And when you're being purchased by a much bigger company, I would say smaller businesses buying or medium-sized businesses buying smaller businesses, not as much of a problem because people have their own stuff, their own like, skeletons in the closet. But if there's a big business with a large um, legal team and they have to um, like follow strict rules and guidelines because they are audited all the time, then you should be prepared for this. And the same should be, the same care should be taken with intellectual property rights and any trademarks that you own. And in general, everything that touched a lawyer's hand at some point should be part of your digital communication and documentation when, when it comes to due diligence. It's just best practice here. And that liabilities have a, a second part, and that is just active, ongoing concerns. Like, are you currently involved in any legitation, uh, sorry, li- litigation or lawsuits, or have you been threatened by that? Disclose that immediately from the beginning. If there are any customers, ex-employees, or partners that may cause you trouble, point it out. Mention and list all past legal actions by or against your company too. Those things will be found out. And unless you're proactive about disclosing them, they will be the biggest red flags for buyers. Like usually at the first sign of legal trouble that was not mentioned immediately by the seller, a buyer will retreat from the acquisition. That happens often. And be honest, forthcoming, and clear about the realistic consequences of those legal issues, and you will be fine. Or you may not be. But if somebody retreats because there is potential um, legal action that you think is fine, then they are not the right company to buy your business. Think about that too. Let's talk about codifying the secret knowledge that you have. Um, And I talked about documentation a bit more last uh, episode, but it's, it's still important to mention this here because there are things that only you know. And these are trade secrets and unfair advantages they are insight into the industry that nobody else has. How can you transfer that knowledge? You will need to find a way to put your insight into writing or another permanent and shareable form. And personally, I did that for Feedback Panda by recording an 11-hour video walkthrough of the Feedback Panda code base before we sold the business so that my replacement as an engineer would understand why the code was structured the way it was. This is a highly technical perspective, but you could probably do this from the marketing perspective too. You can do it from the CEO perspective of sharing the vision of your business in an elaborate story that you tell. This information will differ for you, and I'm quite sure about this, but it needs to be ready to be transferred eventually. So it's good to start early. And it's important to have it in some shape. You can write it down. You can record yourself like a voice memo or just do a video and whatever. It is important to be able to hand something over because the last thing you want to do is to be called upon all the time uh, answering questions that you could have answered in an extensive piece of media, right? You don't want people calling you saying, how do you deal with customers who are like a week late in their payment? Saying, well, how did you do this? If you have a document that says, well, here, and we had this here at Feedback Panda, we really care about our teachers. We care about them so much that we know that they are not well paid in their jobs. We know that they don't have much money and we know that they are financially often in dire straits. So if people have trouble with their payment and it is not a thing that happens every single month, give them a free month. Just cancel the payment, say, it's fine, go ahead, use this free month to get back into shape. And people love that. 
in our business. They, those people that we did this for, they became product evangelists. They were shouting from the rooftops about how Feedback Panda is amazing and the team is nice. They're super friendly. They're extremely helpful. That's what they said about our product just because we said, well, keep your $10 for this month. And if you communicate this, if you communicate how you run your business, like I'm right now talking about it. And if you give this opportunity to the people acquiring you, both during due diligence and during the transition after, to just have access to this, that is gonna make a whole lot of difference in how your business is gonna be transitioned. And let's talk about that for a bit, because um, the due diligence to me is part of the transition. It's really not, but it's um, still a process where there's a lot of back and forth between you and your acquirer. So prepare for some controlled handholding here because you will need to guide them into your business. And the due diligence process will require a lot of work and focus from you. So don't think you can just randomly do this while you're already running at full capacity with your business. This will take time, effort, and will likely cause you some sort of stress and some sort of added, I don't know, like just added complexity to your life. While the buyer will ask for insight, just sending documents to them won't do you any good because you will need to guide them to the information that they seek. So there will be extra work because the entire due diligence process is a trust building exercise. And your involvement in building the relationship in this process will set the tone for years to come. So you will have to see this as your biggest customer yet. The one that you need to close a deal with and you will need to build a relationship that will make the next couple of years enjoyable. Because who knows how easy it will be for them to transition into the business. They might need your help a lot and you don't want to have a sour relationship with them at that point. So start by explaining your documents and what they contain in an overview document. Provide a master document that gives your buyer quick access to the data that they're looking for at a glance. If you're storing all your documents in a cloud storage like Google Drive, you can cross-link between documents easily. We did that for Feedback Panda. We had this big central master document that had little links and tiny paragraphs like a compendium of explanations, what you will find in there. Here's customer service stuff. Here's tech stuff. Here's how we deal with customers. How is, here's how we deal with tax advisors and all these little things. Link them and cross-link, super helpful. And anything that you can do to speed up information retrieval will make the due diligence process less stressful. And while the due diligence phase usually comes with certain legal guarantees, don't be naive. There will be bad actors in the field. And some people will just promise more than they're willing to do. And while most buyers are serious, let me flat out state that, particularly the ones that have something to lose, some may just want to take a look under the hood of your business. So for that reason, I recommend staging the release of information. Starting with the least sensitive documents, like an accurate yet not too detailed PL sheet, and keeping the most critical information, like your internal roadmap documents, until the very end. Don't share secrets. Prepare to share secrets eventually, but don't share them. Never let your buyer access the account details of your customers without anonymizing them. Imagine what could happen if a competitor disguised as a potential acquirer gets their hands on your full customer data. All the emails, all the names, all the addresses. Don't make this possible. Finally, make a checklist for yourself long before you ever get into the due diligence process. Your acquirer will likely have one. And the more similar they are, the less you will have to scramble to prepare. Many serial acquirers will have a checklist that has been developed over many years and they will make sure that all their bases are covered. You can help them develop that trust for you and your product 
by being meticulous about keeping your documents and affairs in order. The more organized you are, the less extra work will come your way. And after all, it you will still have to run a business during all of this. So being prepared is a pretty good idea. And maybe you don't do this from day one because this is kind of like splitting your attention as well. But once you notice that you have a business that is worth selling, maybe at some point, you should look into this. And I would heavily recommend just really Googling acquisition checklists because there will be some out there that are offered by I don't know, brokerages or private equity companies that share their stuff openly. If you go to the SureSwift Capital website, they have the guide on how to make your business acquirable and sellable. Interest of Capital being the company that bought and purchased our business. So they, they have a very well thought out strategy on making sure that people know how they can prepare for potential exit. And doing this a couple months before, maybe years even before you think about actually selling the business will make this whole process so much easier. So I can highly recommend preparing for it first mentally by knowing that it's coming, then organizationally by looking into these things and thinking about how you would apply it to your business and then operationally by actually putting all these things in place, like all the documents in the right place, preparing these kind of media things that I talked about, explaining the vision and mission and like how you code base the structure, these kind of things. You don't have to, but it's super helpful to have this in place before the due diligence process. And I've written about this topic and many, many more, both pertaining to acquisitions and all the steps leading to actually building a, seller, uh, building a sellable business in my book, Zero to Sold. You can purchase it from Amazon and Gumroad and you will find out more on zerotosoldbook.com. So thanks for checking it out. Today, I wanna to respond to a few questions that were sent in by listeners. So here we go. G from New Zealand asked, Few potential co-founders I spoke to recently have expressed their interest in working along more than one founder as their tech co-founder. Are you aware of how the risk and rewards are distributed among the founding team in such scenarios? Thanks for the question, G. This is going to be very highly dependent on the kind of company, the kind of business you're building. Because some companies are really just software-enabled businesses and rely much more heavily on things that are not in the technical department. And then there are businesses that are purely technical, right? Just imagine the difference between a tool that is really just a, a software as a service solution to be integrated into somebody else's tech stack, like an authentication system or a payment system. Um, these things can be either or, because you can build an authentication system that is highly technical, but also integrates into a lot of other services. And then you have to do a lot of partnerships and you have to do a lot of um, integration work with other companies. You could build an authentication system that really is just an email signup, like an email signup system where you can, people would be able to use just email signups, passwords, uh, password resets, and that's it. So it's really just a technical question. It doesn't rely on any kind of integration. So depending on which kind of business you're building, if it's more a technical building, uh, a technical business or a non-technical business, will result in the risk and reward scenario that we're talking about here. I always believe when you're building a new business, particularly in the bootstrap space, with a couple of founders, and you're not just a solopreneur, that the risk and rewards should be spread equally among the founders. 
So even if you have multiple technical co-founders, they should all be equally contributing to the project and they should all be equally be rewarded by whatever comes along in the future of that business. I'm saying this because even though I've always been the sole technical founder in most in the businesses that I've been part of, where, where I was a co-founder, I've seen uh, other businesses that had multiple technical founders and there was a, a just a, a lot of difference between these kind of businesses that I've that I've seen. Some of them had technical founders that were really really clear on splitting the jobs that needed to be done in the business. Right? They had maybe one or two technical founders, and one was a hardware guy, the other one was a software guy. They were building systems that would be integrated and into actual hardware, other people's devices. So there was a clear distinction, and that made it quite easy for them to balance the the kind of potential problems that would come up in a situation like this. Because if you have multiple technical co-founders, one of them will need to lead technical decision-making. Because I, I guess it's, it's always a question of responsibility as well. You can not really govern a group of co-founders very easily using democratic processes where everybody has the same vote when it comes to expert choices that you need to make. So one of these people will need to eventually make a decision. And it's kind of hard, particularly if the co-founders, the technical co-founders in this particular situation are at the same skill level to determine who should be that person. So it's much easier if you have multiple sub-disciplines where those technical co-founders each have their responsibility, and then you just assign one to make like the major architectural or infrastructure changes or choices that need to be done in a business. So that is one of the risks, I would say, that um, with technical people in particular, everybody believes they know everything, or at least they know how to figure out everything. Right? Everything is a challenge. Everything is something where people would be interested in learning and then making a choice, making a um, commitment or building something. So technical founders are quite thrill-seeking when it comes to that kind of stuff. And if you have multiple in your founder team, then there might be some interference between them. And it's important from the beginning to make clear who will make final decisions in which fields. Um, that can be solved by using the process that is laid out in Michael E. Gerber's E-Myth, the book, The E-Myth Revisited, where he, from the beginning of a business, suggests to make this fictional org chart, right? Just imagine you have an org chart of the company as it would be 10 years from now when it has 50 employees. And you pull that up, you put that on a gigantic piece of paper or on a whiteboard, and you, you fill out all those positions. You have a CEO, you have a CTO, you have a CFO, and all these things. And you go down a level and you have like a, a VP of engineering and you have a VP of technology and you go down one further level and you always like just create a fictional org chart of what the company would look like a couple of years in the future. And then you get to the the, the real, like the, the leaves of that tree in particular in the tech field, I guess that would be a backend engineer and a frontend engineer or an SEO engineer or a database administrator, that's kind of, that kind of stuff. So you end up with a pretty large tree of positions. And each of these positions will be one of your co-founders in the beginning. Like we, one of the founders will take need to take this position. So one of them will be the backend engineer. Maybe another guy will be the frontend engineer or it's gonna be the same guy. So he's both gonna be uh, a backend or frontend engineer. Or let's say um, you have a co-founder uh, and she wants to 
I don't know, run the whole database related stuff. So she'll be the database administrator and she'll be the database technician and she'll be the maybe also the backend engineer because she needs to like bring it in. And all these all these things really depend on the setup of your founder group and will be need to you will need to discuss this as a group, particularly when you build a fictional org chart like this. This will be an interesting exercise to see where your strengths lie, where your weaknesses are, and how you wanna like really figure out who's responsible for what. So that will make it easier to reduce the risk of later interference. But in general, I would say that it's quite a good idea to have multiple technical co-founders. In, in my personal experience, it has a lot of work to be done in a newly founded business. Like you have a lot of stuff to build. And if you're only one co-founder, everything is your job like if you are the technical founder of the project you will need to build the system you will need to build the marketing website you will need to build the email list integration and there's a lot of these things that just take some time for you to figure out because mostly as a technical founder there will be things that you've never done before because that you just haven't really had to build these kind of integrations or you hadn't had to work with these kind of tools before because you've been building applications, building platforms, but never have you built anything related to MailChimp or ConvertKit or anything like that. So there's a lot of learning here. And the more people involved with this, particularly in the beginning, when you just need to quickly set stuff up, the faster you will go. So I kind of like the idea of having multiple technical co-founders, in particular, when it comes to businesses that are heavy on the technical side. I would also say that if you have a business that is not as technical, it is still good to have multiple technical co-founders because then you can easily split them into different projects. Let's say you're building something on a, on a no-code platform and you still need integrations that you will need to build. So you can have one technical founder build something in, in terms of integrations and you might want to look into building a mobile application that connects with your API or something like that and that can be the project for another technical founder and then all of a sudden you can work on multiple things at the same time you have you're less of a bottleneck as a technical founder because somebody else is also capable of solving technical issues when they come up and I guess that brings me to my my final point here when it comes to the the opportunities of having multiple technical co-founders the fact is that at some point, something will go wrong in your business on the technical side. There may be downtime with a server. There may be some kind of change in some API of some of your downstream dependencies that requires you to make a change to your business, to your software, or to just to your product in some way. And that will happen at any time of the day in a global economy. So you never really know when it's going to happen. And setting up this kind of 24-7 availability to fix things, that is very stressful if you're just one person who could be doing this. So one of the opportunities of having multiple co-founders is that the technical load of bug fixing and emergency response can be split between two people. So there can be some actual sanity in the business and not just like waiting for stuff to happen. I've had this multiple times during us running Feedback Panda that like at three or four in the morning, my phone would ring with some message that some part of our system would have gone down. And even if it was just a marketing website, like our landing page, essentially, I would still need to get up 
and bring it back on. Because if some if a customer would come and couldn't reach our website, even though our application was still working, but the marketing site wouldn't, well, then they couldn't convert into a paying customer eventually. So that would be a loss. So I would need to fix it quickly. And since I never really hired anybody to do this for me, to just watch and fix things, it was always on me. And if something is always on you as a sole technical founder, that's going to be a big problem eventually, right? If you were a couple of years into the business and you didn't get, uh, you never really have a solid sleep because you always think something might be wrong or some change need to be responded to, it's just not good for your mental health. So having multiple co- technical co-founders could easily resolve this problem from the beginning, which is why I think those risks really are outweighed by the opportunities and the rewards of having multiple technical people in a business. I hope this uh, answers your question regarding the risk. And let me get back to the rewards again, because I said earlier, um, in this kind of business, I would expect the equity to be split between everybody the same way. If you have three people, it's 33.3% for everybody. If it's two people, well, if you're both technical, I guess that's a 50-50 split and 25% for four and so on. I, I want to bring this point home because I think this is important to understand with a business because until a business is actually generating revenue and providing value and growing in value and, pro- and providing um, wealth to some degree to somebody, either through a distribution of the the money of the the, the earnings in the in the business or just paying yourself a salary the business has no value so if you're going into something with multiple people it still has zero value in the beginning so if you think that you are so much more important to the business that you need 80% of the business and your two co-founders have to split the remaining 20 i'm not quite sure if um a, a bootstrap business is for you like if you bring capital into the business, if you bring like $150,000 so you could pay everybody for the first year, well, then maybe it's a different um, yeah, a different discussion at this point. But still, the value of the business, the business without your injected capital is still fairly low. So just because you bring money doesn't mean you technically should be owning 80%, particularly if you're doing this with friends or colleagues or something like this. I feel... Um, if you go into business together, everybody should receive at least a somewhat similar amount of reward in the end. So, um, yeah, that's my position on this. Obviously, there are constellations of business where somebody brings so much more to the table. They bring capital, they bring a network, they bring expertise. And then there's uh, another founder who brings less, is still working on it and still pouring their work into it. But they they just bring less from the beginning. So some some kind of skewed um, equity split is fine there. But I feel if you have multiple co-founders, and I've been in this situation, I've been one of these co-founders who had to kind of fight for their 5 or 7 or 10% in the, in the rest of the team, it just leaves you with a bad taste. And it leaves you with less of an incentive, less of the, a kind of motivation to be really, really pouring everything you have into this business. If somebody else owns 80%, it's just really not where you want to like build wealth knowing you're not building it for yourself, you're building it for somebody else. It's different if you're a salaried employee, at least you get paid. But if you don't, then just owning 10% of a business kind of feels wrong if you're putting in an equal amount of work as the others. So hope that answers your questions um, regarding risk and rewards of having multiple technical co-founders. So thanks, G. Another question. 
Yannick, the, the co-founder of Hype Fury, that, is, uh, that would be my personal Twitter scheduling tool of choice, asks, how would you prioritize features for current users versus new users? Thanks, Yannick, for the question. I believe that in terms of SaaS businesses, current users, users that already are buying something from your business, are more important than new users. And you find this particularly in revenue metrics of your business or just general metrics of your business. Retention, a high retention and a low churn is much more important to reach higher numbers in the future than a high amount of people, new people signing up for your business. Because conversion rates will still be somewhere between 10, 20, 30 if you're lucky and 40% if you're really lucky of new users. But if you have a churn rate of under 2%, if you have a retention rate of 98%, then these numbers are much more important for you to consistently grow your business. Because you will either be able to just increase your prices at some point because your business itself has become, um, more, or not the business, but the product has become more valuable, or you can upsell people with additional features, essentially reducing churn even further into that negative churn, right? Where you, you actually, even though you might be losing customers somewhere, the other customers outspend the money that is lost uh, from those people leaving the business. And finally, I, I guess you have to spend a lot of time converting a trial user into a paying user. You have to spend much less energy converting a paying user, an already paying user, into a paying user for the next month, right? And that little energy, I guess, that it's more like you spend less energy on something that has a much higher reward. And I think that's where you should be working on most. So your question being prioritize features for current users versus new users, I think you should prioritize features for current users much more than for new users. Because also, um, if you were to prioritize features for new users in, um, yeah, let's let's take Hyperview for an example. I'm using your tool, right? I'm using your business. I'm paying a, a monthly subscription fee to Hyperview. And I want to be able to continue using this product and I want to be able to continue using this product more. So if you were to build something for people unlike me who are using, I don't know, I mean, you have a feature in there for Instagram posts and stuff. Let me just take this as an example. Um, I don't use Instagram and I don't use TikTok. I don't use these things for marketing. So if you were to go to TikTok and build a TikTok integration for Hype Fury, which is probably a good idea because people use TikTok for marketing purposes, right? And they would probably use Hype Fury to schedule the TikTok posts. It's not a big problem, but these are people that are not currently your customers. They're not people like me. I am using um, Hype Fury for Twitter and I'm using it to consistently and reliably reach my own audience on the platform. I don't care for TikTok. And if you build something that makes my life easier, already using your product, then I'm going to be a happy customer in the future. And if you build something for somebody else that I won't use, well, then I'm going to be just as happy as last month, right? And just as happy as last month, maybe a bit less happy, knowing that your priority lies with people that are not already supplying your business with money. 
that are not already generating revenue for you and your co-founder. So um, that is my personal perspective. And I don't want, to, uh, want you to understand this to be a threat to what you're doing um, if you were to try to expand your business. Because obviously every business has to grow. But the question is, do you grow into a new audience out there that you're not currently tapped into, that you don't even have access to? Or do you grow into your existing audience? And you could reach out to everybody who uses your software for Twitter only and ask them, well, what can we do to make your life better right now using our software already, sending hundreds of messages every week? And you would get answers from those people like me. I'll be telling you there's this thing that might be better or there's this thing that I've been trying to figure out but can't use your product for. And I think by asking your existing audience from the beginning what their problems are and how you can solve them with your product, you're at least going the the most reliable way. You're going the most validated way about um, making changes and prioritizing things in your product. So my recommendation is to really focus on features for current users until the point where you're kind of saturated, where people don't really ask for anything anymore. And you might already be there. That's the thing, right? If with Hype Fairy, you have a pretty strong grasp on how to um, use Twitter, how to enable people to use Twitter much more efficiently than if they were using Twitter um, just manually on the, on the website with the, the weird Twitter UI that is really horrible, right? Hype Fairy is much better when it comes to that. So you might already be there. So it really boils down to your audience choice in the end. Do you want to work with your existing audience? Do you want to improve their lives? Do you want to improve the solutions to their problems? Or do you want to expand to another audience and start investigating their problems? Start prioritizing their solutions or solutions to their problems over solutions to the problems of your existing audience. And I think this needs to be a conscious choice. If you are at a stage where you think you have a saturated audience, then go right ahead and build things for new users. But if you think there is still room for improvement, and there usually is within your existing niche audience, then I would highly recommend prioritizing features for them until the point where you feel, okay, even though there are still a couple things to do, they're not as important as branching out as getting to see other people's perspective on this and allowing us to grow the business even further. But it needs to be a conscious choice you make because once you make that choice, you will need to make sure that you communicate to your old audience that this is not a threat to them. Because if you were to build more and more features that are not Twitter related, and I'm going to bring myself in as an example here, then I would start wondering, well, where is Hype Fury going? Right? Where is the roadmap leading to? Are they going to be an integration platform for all kinds of um, social media, things like Buffer, for example? Or are they doubling down on another platform and leaving Twitter to just be Twitter and moving into a completely different segment? This needs to be communicated to your audience, to your existing audience, to your prospective audience, and to your future audience, right? To your paying customers, your trial customers, and your future customers. And... If you can do this well, and if you communicate it clearly, then any of those two choices, prioritizing for current or for future users, is fine. 
It just needs to be communicated clearly. I hope this answers your question. Thank you, Yannick. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, at A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have any questions about this episode, please reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder or buy a copy of Zero to Sold. That also helps. It will help other founders and founders-to-be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening today and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.